Dr. McWhite has a special preaching opportunity this morning at a neighboring church. His son, David, has been called to serve at Edwards Road Baptist Church, and they're installing him this morning. And they asked Dr. McWhite if he would like to preach the installation message for his boy. So that's where he is, and it's my privilege to stand in this pulpit this morning. I invite you, if you want to go ahead and have the the passage open, we'll be in John 8, verses 31 to 36. When my 97-year-old father talks about what it was like serving in World War II, it doesn't take long for him to settle into a narrative about what it was like to fight in the Battle of the Bulge. The Battle of the Bulge is a nickname given to the battle, not the official name, but when artists drew what it looked like for the Nazis' army as it advanced against the Western Front, it had a bulge shape to it as they pressed out in an 85-mile range. My dad talks about how cold it was. In fact, I think the cold and snow Being so bitter was a bigger enemy than was the Germans. And my daddy once said that ever since the Battle of the Bulge, he's never wanted to be cold. And I understand when I walk into his house in the wintertime and it's warm enough to bake a potato, that must be the reason. Well, the Battle of the Bulge was the biggest battle, single battle of all of World War II, both in injuries and deaths, the United States alone suffered over 100,000 casualties. If, if Germany had won the Battle of the Bulge, we can only imagine what kind of world we would be living in today. But because the United States military and the military of our allies stood strong and fought hard, they were able to win the Battle of the Bulge And Germany never recovered and eventually, as we know, went down to defeat. Both Christianity and our culture in general are engaged in a contemporary battle of the bulge. It's not a physical battle, but it is a huge spiritual battle. And the forces of Satan, especially since the latter part of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century, have been engaged in a furious assault at the battle line of truth. Using such weapons as the media, the press, educational systems, political and philosophical ideologies, Satan's strategy has been not only to fight against truth, but even in recent years to suggest, is there anything such as truth? Sadly, when, with Satan's onslaught, the battle line at the point of truth looks like a baby bump when seen from the side. We should not be surprised that Satan has decided and chosen the battle line to be the point of truth. We know that because of John 8:44, where Jesus said of him, He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. 
Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and disguises and is the father of lies. It's no wonder that Paul in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen said, he described Satan as one who disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's only natural that the father of lies would choose truth to be the point of battle. Now, you and I, the church universal, cannot afford to lose this contemporary battle of the bulge. But the only way that we can win it is when one by one we stand strong and we obey in the way that Dr. McWhite has been preaching and teaching us out of the life of Elijah over the last couple of weeks. It will only be possible if we unwaveringly believe that not only is, is Jesus' truth true about the moment we take our last breath and enter into eternity, but that we believe unwaveringly that Jesus' truth applies to every Sunday through Saturday time period of our lives. We're going to be in John 8, 31, 36, a passage that contains some of the most important words Jesus ever spoke, especially about the subject of truth. In these verses, Jesus establishes what in our culture we have to say is true truth as opposed to false truth and true freedom as opposed to false freedom. The culture in which we live epitomizes what it means to live according to false truth. And as a result, many in our culture, and sadly many Christians who are going along with it, are experiencing false freedom because of it. Now, as we come to the main points in the message guide today, I want to give you a warning. You need to read and listen and write fast, okay? Because things will go by in a blur in some cases, uh, and I want to make sure that you are working hard to get all that we say. In this passage of Scripture, the first thing that we find out of Jesus' words is the proof of true discipleship is abiding in Jesus' words. We see that in verse 31 where Jesus says, Jesus therefore was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. Now what's interesting in verses 30 and 31 is a slight contrast that's brought out in the scripture. In verse 30, it talks about those who believe in Jesus. In verse 31, it talks about those who believe Jesus. And then from 31 all the way through 59, Jesus is talking to people who truly have not believed in him. And so that reminds us that there is a world of difference in believing in Jesus and believing or acknowledging his words that he has said. Now, Jesus said in verse 31, if you abide in my word, the word if gives a contrast or a condition which must be met if a certain thing is going to happen. And so he says that condition which must be met is you must abide in my word. What does it mean to abide? 
Abide has several definitions, all of which apply. To remain in, to accept, to dwell in, to adhere to, to live by. Now think of all those words collectively. Jesus could just have easily said, if you obey my commands, then you truly are disciples of mine. Those words combined together are another word, may combine in another word for obedience. And then he says, if you abide in my word, not the world's words, not your own words, but in my word. So what was he talking about when he says, if you abide in my word? Well, it's Jesus' teachings and instructions about life. It's his verbal description regarding life and how it functions and how it's supposed to be lived. It's his verbal declarations as to the nature and character of God. It's the word of God incarnate in his life. His word is his description of true truth. So Jesus says, if you abide in my word, my instructions about life, the truth that I teach, then you are truly my disciples. So what's a disciple? Well, a disciple is a true follower of Jesus. It's a true learner of Jesus. It's a true modeler of the Christ life. So what is Jesus saying? By saying, if we abide in his words, we are truly his disciples. What Jesus is saying is, if we adhere to and thus obey his teachings, if we stay connected by faith with his word through Bible reading and study and obey that word, then and only then can we claim to be his followers. If we don't abide in his word or stay connected to him through his word, or obey his word. We are not his disciples, no matter what kind of religious trappings we put on our lives. The Pharisees are proof of that. So the first truth, Jesus says, if you abide in my word, then you're truly disciples of mine. Now, the second point that we see in this passage of Scripture is that abiding in Jesus' word enables me to know true truth. One of the most important questions ever recorded in all of Scripture is a question that is asked through the ages, but being challenged in our culture. It's found in John 18, verses 37 to 38. Jesus was talking to Pilate as Pilate was investigating him to see if he was deserving of being crucified. Jesus said, for this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world. Now listen to what he says next. To bear witness to the truth. And then he adds, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. He could go on and say, abides in my word. Now, this led Pilate to ask him, what is truth? Now, what if someone asked you, when you were talking to them about truth, well, what is truth? 
I like the definition in New Webster's Dictionary Thesaurus. The state or quality of being in agreement with fact, accurate, correct, exact. By that definition, we know that that dictionary has been around a while. Well, there's a follow-up question. Be in agreement with what? Being accurate or correct or exact about what? About reality. One of the most beneficial books I've ever read was written by Greg Kukul. The title of the book is the best title I've ever heard. The Story of Reality. How the world began, how it ends, and everything important that happens in between. It's a great, great book. He defines reality this way. It is an account or a description or depiction of the way things actually are. Okay, so that means that truth is reality. Truth is what describes how things really are, both about a given situation in life or life as a whole. Truth is reality expressed in words. Now, Jesus told Pilate that he had come, he had come to bear witness to the truth. He would do that in John 8, as we've already read, but he would also do it a little bit later in the upper room the night before he was crucified. When he spoke these words in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. And then he adds what we see in our passage today about truth. He says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Now, since truth is an accurate expression of reality, since Jesus himself is truth, then that makes Jesus the most accurate expression of reality, period. Jesus is truth. Truth is Jesus. What truth is, Jesus is. What Jesus is, truth is. What Jesus says is truth. What he does is truth. How he says life is to be lived is truth. Jesus is truth because his life and words are the only inerrant description of reality that we have. So that leads to an important life principle. If we abide in Jesus' words, as a result, we come to know him. When we know him, we know the truth, because the truth, he is the truth and speaks only truth. That is an important principle to latch on to. Now, notice something very important about what he says in verse 32. He says, you shall know the truth, not a truth among many truths. It's important for us to recognize and accept from the mouth of Jesus the truth about truth. 
What he is saying is there exists, no matter what modern man may say, an absolute truth by which all else in life is to be judged as either being true or false, right or wrong, black or white. Anything in agreement with his absolute truth, therefore, is true. Anything in disagreement with his absolute truth, therefore, is false. No matter how strongly the clamor for the truth, the false truth is in our culture. Now, why is this so important? It's because for the last generation, we have been told that truth is relative. That each person discovers truth for him or herself, and whatever that person determines to be truth is truth for himself. Whatever somebody else determines is truth for him him or herself. Now, as I have studied over the years, postmodernism, which is the, the soul in which this mindset came to be in our culture. And listen carefully, I'm describing that point of view, not my point of view or God's point of view when I say this. This is how that thinking goes. If, and that's a big if, there is such a thing as absolute truth, as soon as you express your version of it, you have distorted it. As soon as I express my version of it, I have distorted it. Because both of us are working off distorted versions of absolute truth, then we cannot judge one another for our positions. Instead, what we need to do is to help one another celebrate our distortions of truth and live our distortions of truth to the fullest. Now, you think about the culture in which we live. Is that not a description of how people think today? Well, I would say to you today, there's no more dangerous trap to fall into than to believe that truth is relative. For you see, if you and I make statements that are 180 degrees apart, Either you are right and I'm wrong, I'm right and you're wrong, or we're both wrong, but we cannot, in the nature of truth, both be right. I can believe all day long something to be true that does not correspond to reality, and my all day long belief of it will never make it right and true. Now, why are people so inclined to say that truth is relative? I'll give you four quick reasons. For some, it's a matter of, well, who am I to say you're right and I'm wrong, or vice versa? For some, it's an unwillingness to say there's one source of absolute truth because then that leads you to the truth that there's a one truth giver. For some, it's an unwillingness to be held accountable to another person's standard of truth or to their authority to speak truth into the lives and judge them by it into others' lives. For others, it's a matter of wanting the freedom of choice without the worry and burden of guilt. So Jesus makes something very clear in this passage of Scripture. 
Truth is a person. He is that person. True truth is absolute. True truth can be known, but it is revealed, not discovered. Which leads us to the third point. The third point is possession of true truth, Jesus says, sets us free. We see this in verses 32 and 36. Years ago, I read, and it was a long time ago when you hear the story, I heard about a daycare facility that was in a private home that did not have a fence around the play area where the children were. And all the children, because it was beside a busy street, played up close to the house until the owner put up a fence along the street. And then the children began to play all over that yard without anybody saying a word to them. What some would see as a barrier, a fence to freedom, the children saw as freedom to play. Now, what Jesus is saying to you and me is the fact that if we play within the boundaries that God's truth establishes for us, we can play with complete freedom. But if we play according to the boundaries of falsehood, then we will experience the consequences that come with it. Now, Jesus says in verse 32, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Well, the Jews picked up on that quickly and they were saying, we're not slaves to anything. So what is Jesus saying? We're free from what? He's saying we're free from sin if we live according to his truth. He says in verse 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Does that mean if I commit one sin, then I'm a slave to sin? If we understand the, the Greek behind the word commit, it helps. Jesus is not saying one sin means you're a slave to sin. The word commit is a present tense verb in the Greek, which means it's not only a condition right now at this moment, but it's an ongoing condition that will continue. And so he's describing an individual who not only commits a sin, but commits that sin over and over and over again, or sinning in general over and over again. That means that we are enslaved by it. Now, in what ways does the possession of truth free men? And this is where you got to listen hard, write fast. Number one, it negates Satan's attempts to control and influence me through half-truths and whole lies. Half-truths and whole lies. Number two, if I know the truth, then I know Jesus. If I know Jesus, I am free from the penalty of sin in my past, the power of sin in my present, and the presence of sin in the future when I go to heaven. Number three, God's truth, Jesus' truth frees me because it provides me the wisdom I need to interpret life accurately and to respond to life situations in a way 
that produces the best possible results by the best possible means for the most possible people. And I'm indebted to Chip Ingram for that definition of God's wisdom. Number three, four, it enhances freedom and personal relationships. And number five, it enables me to avoid enslavement to the consequences of sin. The ultimate consequence of sin is missing out on heaven. Now this leads us to a key truth. It's a whole lot better for us to use God's truth to avoid sin's consequences than to have to call upon it when we need to recover from those consequences. It's a whole lot better to use God's truth to avoid sin's consequences than the need to call upon his truth to get out of them. Which leads us to our final point. Our pride can keep us from accepting Jesus as the truth and will keep us from accepting the truth he speaks as the best way to live. I mentioned a little earlier, as soon as Jesus said, the truth shall make you free, the, the Jews who had not believed pushed back. We're not slaves. Nothing has us enslaved. And as a result, the unbelieving Jews foolishly were blinded to the truth that they were sinners in need of being saved. That is the ultimate lie that we can swallow from Satan, that sin doesn't matter, that there's no such thing as condemnation, there's no such thing as a place called hell. Now, the Jews' pride kept them from thinking they needed to be saved, let alone being saved, and that's so typical of so many people in our culture of false truth today. But you and I, as believers, need to beware Pride can also keep us from ever seeing the sin that still has its stranglehold over us. From seeing that we need Jesus' truth to live a consequence-free life. Well, let me wrap it up. It's extremely important to answer correctly the question that Pilate asked. What is truth? It's also important to ask another question and to answer it correctly. What will I do with the truth once I know it? What we do with the truth hinges on the question that Dr. McQuite asked us at the end of his sermon last week. Do I trust God's word? In other words, do I really trust his truth? Obedience to that truth is the only way that we can give testimony to the fact that we do trust his truth. I close with this statement at the bottom of your guide. 
Remember what we do with the truth, with the one who is truth, will ultimately determine if we are slaves to sin or free to righteousness. Obedience is the only way to win the contemporary battle of the bulge. Let's pray. Father, Satan is a good devil. Not meaning that what he does is good, but he is good at being the devil. And his best work in our culture today is on the battlefront of truth. And Lord, dangerously for many in our our church cultures today, We've bought into the the truth, the false truth, that truth is relative. I pray, Lord, that you would convict us of that. What your word says is, because Jesus is the truth, he is the truth for every person, for every situation in life, whether we believe it or not. Lord, may that truth convict us this morning. May we repent and confess any false truth in our lives by which we've been living. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing together. If you need to respond, need to accept Christ, need to join our church, need to come kneel and pray, need to commit uh, your life, uh, recommit your life to Christ, you come as we sing.